Just when you think this dark and twisted story has finally come to a conclusion, more information about football star, turned convicted killer, Aaron Hernandez, continued to emerge. He'd been convicted to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of his one-time friend, Odin Lloyd. To make things even worse, Odin was in a relationship with the sister of Aaron's fiance, Shayana. He had the blood of a close friend and future in-law on his hands. Now, multiple families were destroyed and still left without answers. This is a case that truly supports the idea that there's more than meets the eye. When the public saw Aaron, they saw a young man with confidence, a man on the brink of becoming an NFL superstar. Instead, this newly convicted murderer was about to be charged with yet another deadly crime. The public wasn't just fascinated with his crimes. There were whispers that were getting louder and louder about his sexuality as well as his past. People were fast learning. They didn't know Aaron Hernandez at all. He wasn't anything that he was projecting. He wasn't anything people that knew him or his teammates believed him to be. During this episode, we will look to the closest source to Aaron for answers his fiancée, Shayana. We'll talk about the revealing questions I asked her about their relationship, her stance on his guilt, and what she has to say about his sexuality. This is The Fall of a Hero, From Football to Murder. Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil. My Bessie Stormburst low top and weekend sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weather-wise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15, 20 during the day. And then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner, I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet, and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessie Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make this summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at Vessi.com mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessi and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. 
We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Now, we touched on this in our first episode. Aaron's murder trial was obviously a major deal. But it wasn't his first rodeo when it came to breaking the law. For years, this guy had been getting away with criminal behavior by the skin of his teeth. He had coaches who covered for him when he got into bar fights. He had a history of drug use. And he had an explosive temper. What he had going for him was the magic he could create out there on the football field. Aaron's talent won him a spot on the University of Florida football team, and his skill was so apparent that it was almost a given that if he worked hard, he would make it in the pros. His coach, Urban Meyer, took Aaron under his wing, getting him out of trouble, inviting him to dinner with his family, and mentoring him to help further his career. Now, Coach Urban Meyer is a legend in his own right. He had shaped many a young man into very accomplished college and professional athletes. Coach Meyer knew Aaron was the kind of player you don't come across every day. He was like a diamond in the rough. According to those familiar with the situation, the coach had a sense that Aaron was talented, but definitely troubled. Indeed, from the very beginning of Aaron's career, there was this split type of personality, this split persona that he exhibited. It was like Jekyll and Hyde. When you think of football, you think of America's pastime. Those players are idolized. He got to do things on the field that, well, regular folks just can't do. Then you have the other half of his split personality. The guy who's lashing out at others, beating people up, hanging with a rough crowd, even committing murder. When the NFL draft came around for Aaron, it was allegedly known to the organization that Aaron had a tendency to get into trouble, that he was a hothead. However, it was also noted that in addition to his athletic ability, he also had an outstanding work ethic and a great focus. While his behavioral issues caused him to slide to the fourth round, well, the Patriots still wanted him. He was just that good. Now, athletes who achieve Aaron's level of success usually have certain things in common. They have an intense focus. They're self-starters, and Aaron's father had helped instill this in him. From a very early age, he created a work ethic that made Aaron stand out against others that maybe had equal talent. He taught him about winning, about drive. Football was his life, and he took it seriously. He was born with a gift, but he honed that God-given talent into something very special. There are a lot of people that are born with a talent, but they squander it. They don't do what they could with it. But then you see those that are great athletes like Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Michelle Kwan, Tiger Woods. They deliver feats of greatness in moments of extreme pressure. Why? Because they have the ability to compartmentalize. They have the ability to shut everything out. Big-time players make big-time plays in big-time moments, and that's what it takes to really excel in the big leagues. 
And when it came to Aaron, he was on a team that had such prestige and such a huge fan base that under the glaring lights of the football field, he really did need to bring the goods and he needed to do it again and again and again. And that took a work ethic. That took a focus. And that was a real contrast. Because while he had this incredible work ethic on the field at practice, he didn't really live a clean life when he was at home and on his own. He wasn't in bed at 9 o'clock. He wasn't eating a perfect diet. He wasn't treating his body like a temple. And the type of scrutiny and pressure that comes from being on such a high-profile franchise can impact someone who's well-adjusted, let alone someone who is struggling personally, who has emotional issues, who's coming from a family where there was strife and tension. When it came to Aaron, it's fair to say he was struggling. He was struggling to balance a high-pressure elite job with mental health and behavioral issues with social issues because he had gone down a path in his life that exposed him to a different walk, exposed him to things that most people would never imagine he would be involved in. Violence, a bad crowd, a different kind of currency where He was expected to do things. He was expected to conform to a different folkway and moray that came from the street life. So going back to his conviction, there's been a dramatic trial. He's been found guilty. His adorable daughter and beautiful fiance, well, they're just faced with the reality that life without parole means he has taken his last breath of fresh air, last breath of free air. But now there were new charges of more murders that the prosecution alleged Aaron had committed. Headlines exploded. This was a guy being paid tens of millions of dollars by the NFL, and all the while he had allegedly killed people. It was becoming apparent that Odin might not be the only man who took his last breath at the hand of Aaron Hernandez. These murders in question, well, they supposedly occurred in 2012 and were just now coming to light in connection with Aaron. So what are we talking about here? Well, the crime we're talking about happened outside a Boston nightclub called Cure. Two men... 29-year-old Daniel Diubrio and 28-year-old Safiro Furtado were shot to death in a drive-by shooting in the early morning hours. After years of getting away with alleged murder, Aaron's luck had run out. He was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. According to the district attorney, Mr. Ubrio and Mr. Furtado were ambushed and executed as they drove home in Boston's South End in the early morning hours of July 16, 2012. The DA went on to say that Aaron had pulled his SUV alongside the two men, then fired a 38 caliber revolver at them. This was a case that had been a slow burn for investigators. 
When law enforcement documents became unsealed, they revealed that Aaron had been a suspect in this case for some time. This had been a ticking time bomb in his life. It had just been ticking silently. And if the murder of Odin Lloyd had not happened, these murders were very likely going to come to light. There are interesting similarities around these murders to the murder of Odin Lloyd. For one thing, it's also a shooting. That does seem to be Aaron's M.O. when it comes to settling scores. And for another, there's once again this sense of bravado, this lack of fear of getting caught. To shoot people outside a nightclub from your car seems like an invite to possibly getting caught. There's also a rush he may have experienced from possibly getting away with it. Now, think about that. In this day and time, we're talking 2012. Security cameras are everywhere. When you're around a high-profile nightclub, there are certainly security cameras in the parking lot. And an automobile is a pretty big object. It's pretty easy to read on a security camera. Is it white? Is it red? Is it black? Is it an SUV? Is it a sedan? What's the make? What's the model? All of this was exemplified in the evidence. Witnesses had identified his car at the scene of the crime. Moreover, police search warrants said Aaron and another man, Alexander Bradley, had followed the two men into the club earlier that night. Perhaps the most potentially damning piece of evidence was the security camera footage had caught Aaron and his friend, Alexander, first together inside the club, then driving an SUV that had been following Daniel and Sephiro. Witnesses said they saw that SUV speed away after multiple shots were fired at the car. Another man who was there that night was shot in the arm, but survived. Again, you don't typically associate a drive-by shooting with an NFL player. So what was the motive? And when I say what was the motive, think about it. When you have this kind of violence, when I say this kind of violence, I mean street violence. What's usually involved? Well, there's a turf war, perhaps. Drugs debt concerning drugs. And when you're talking about an NFL player that has a $40 million contract, you don't expect that person to be in a turf war over a corner of a street for drug trafficking. You don't expect them to be so involved that they're willing to kill somebody over money that you can fold up and put in your pocket. It just doesn't seem to fit. It seemed that when Aaron became angered by someone, he just allegedly got trigger happy. There's something with people that have problems with impulse control that I refer to as STT. Short-term time frame. They live in that moment. They don't think about their history and everything that they've accomplished and are putting at risk. They don't think about the future, everything that they could be jeopardizing. 
They're in the moment right now. The past is over. The future hasn't happened yet. The only time is right now, and they're angry right now, and they live in the moment. Short-term time frame. They don't look back. They don't look forward. Time just stands still, and they act in that moment. Now, remember, his friend and former marijuana supplier, Alexander, who was with Aaron that night, claimed that Aaron later shot him in the face after an argument pertaining to that shooting. Alexander was a key witness. He was given immunity in exchange for his testimony against Aaron, and Aaron attacking him was the reason that in addition to his other charges, Aaron was charged with witness intimidation. So let's think about this. You got Odin Lloyd, who's dead now. That's bad enough, right? You think, okay, you're now in prison for life without parole. You've now got the deaths of Mr. Diubrio and Mr. Furtado. Then you've got the witness, Alexander, who's shot in the face concerning those other two murders. So now you've got five people that have been on the serious, deadly end of a shooting allegedly by Aaron Hernandez. The criminal side is obviously bad, but in addition to that, the families of Daniel and Sefiro filed a wrongful death suit against Aaron to the tune of $6 million. And now the arm of the law was following suit. There wasn't any evidence that all these men knew each other. The police described the events leading up to the shooting as a chance encounter. So things are fine one minute and go haywire the next. And when things go haywire with Aaron Hernandez, it seems that gunfire is often involved. That distracts with his band of losing control of his impulses, his brand of aggression, his brand of anger. This time, Aaron had a new prominent defense lawyer that he had added to his team, Jose Baez, the famed attorney who also led Casey Anthony to her acquittal. The prosecution tried to make their case against Aaron by saying that his motive was that he felt disrespected, therefore decided to take these guys out. His friend and former marijuana supplier, Alexander Bradley, was there that night. And Alexander gave a blow-by-blow of the encounter that led to, he claimed, Aaron pulling the trigger. What Alexander said on the witness stand about Aaron, well, it was just downright chilling. According to Alexander, one of the men had spilled a drink on Aaron. And no matter what Alexander said, Aaron just could not calm down about it. He took it as a sign of disrespect. Spilling a drink on him in a crowded club. Let's face it, it happens. According to Alexander's testimony, by the end of their night out, he and Aaron were in Aaron's SUV trailing the group of men that had been involved with this spilled drink, and gunfire breaks out. 
both men get shot and shot to death. Alexander did say that even Aaron and he were in a state of shock when this was all over with. However, according to Alexander, Aaron was able to compose himself because he had to get to work on how to cover up this mess. Alexander and Aaron drove off before police arrived, and Aaron wiped down the gun, then threw it along with the shells out the car window. Their next order of business, according to Alexander, was for Aaron to have his cousin Tanya come get the SUV and store it in her garage to keep it away from investigators and others who may have seen the car. The car only came to light once again while police were investigating Odin Lloyd's murder. Alexander was giving jurors a hell of a story complete with pointing out a scar above his eye where he alleges Aaron shot him to keep him quiet about the murders. Unfortunately, Jose Baez, who I know very well, is an excellent defense lawyer. And he and his team went to work to demonstrate that the prosecution's star witness was no Boy Scout. They had to compromise his credibility or they were sunk. Between serving a five-year prison sentence for a separate shooting, in addition to his history of dealing drugs, the defense successfully created seeds of doubt in the jurors' minds. Alexander, the prosecution's main leg to stand on, wasn't enough to convince a jury. And they came back with not guilty verdicts. Interestingly, Aaron was seen weeping when he found out that he had been found not guilty of the murders. And I say interestingly because based on the descriptions you've heard me give so far, that was not the norm for him. The last time the verdict was read that he was guilty and then the sentencing, life without parole, he had remained completely poker-faced. He may have been acquitted, however, there is still a belief that persists that Aaron was the alleged mastermind behind this shooting and was let off by the jury due to a lack of concrete evidence tying him to the crime. Now, at this time, his conviction for Odin's murder was under appeal. So there was still a chance that if the appellate court reversed this, if they found errors in the record, if they found errors made by the judge that evidence had been let in that shouldn't be, or evidence that should have been let in wasn't, that they could have thrown that conviction out, and Aaron Hernandez could have walked. It's true he was found guilty at the trial level, but that conviction has to be upheld by the appellate court. So, make no mistake, bringing these charges against him for these other murders while this other case was on appeal, was not a coincidence. This was a separate case. Just because Aaron 
was most likely going to spend the rest of his life behind bars didn't mean that these other men didn't deserve justice in their specific case, but the timing did help sustain the conviction in the Odin Lloyd case. This was the thinking of the prosecution. Not to say they didn't have a duty to seek justice for all victims in cases, because they did, even if they're committed by the same person. It's not one size fits all. I guarantee you, if he goes to prison for life without parole for Odin Lloyd's murder, the families of these other two men won't feel nearly the sense of justice they would feel if he was also convicted, also held to account for murdering their loved ones. The fact that someone's paying a price generically just doesn't have the same psychological impact. You want them to pay for what they did to your family member. And had this been a guilty verdict, I mean, it really would have helped these families. They would have had a sense that at least some accountability had been brought to bear. But now, he's been found innocent of these men's murders, but while he awaits his appeal, he's still behind bars. And it could be for life. When you think back to this, you think back all the things that he had overcome, you think back to the glamorous lifestyle, the celebrity that he had, the financial security that he had, the family that he had, it still begs the question, how did he get here? Why did he need this person to be dead so badly that he would jeopardize everything. And what exactly was going on inside that troubled mind that made this seem like a reasonable idea? Well, I looked to his fiancee, Shayana, for answers. I didn't sugarcoat things with her. I wanted to ask the questions others might be afraid to ask in an effort to get to the truth. What do you want people to know about him? How do you want people to consider him other than the way they see because they see him with the tattoos, they see him with all of these stories swirling around him that he was a member of a gang, that he was involved in not one, not two, but three murders. Two he's been found not guilty of. What do you want those people to know about him? Aaron, I I want him, one, to be known as innocent um, because he was. And he was full of life. so, so sweet, um, very lovable, um, would do anything for anyone. Um, and I know there's many people out there, but he just had something about him um, that regardless of who he met, what room he walked into, he can make everyone laugh. He's just, a, to me, a, a great guy, the love of my life, the father of my child. I just want him to be known for for what he is instead of what people are speculating him out to be from what they see on TV. They want to make him out to be this monster, and he's not. People are going to love who they love. Say what you will about Shayani, it struck me that despite it all, 
She clearly loved this man, and it pained her that people might think of the person she considered her soulmate to be a monster. Something that struck me from my sit-down with her, apart from her unwavering loyalty to him, was that this had been a very lonely process for her. She was very forthright about not feeling like Aaron's family had been there supporting him in the same way she had. Do they love their son, Aaron? Uh, I'm, I'm sure they do. And, and you love Aaron. Uh, absolutely. You have that in common. What are your points of contention? I honestly don't know. And that's another situation that we haven't necessarily sat down and discussed. Um, I think it was just high tension with everything going on. Everyone kind of um, was upset, sad. No one stood by his side but me. That's where my frustration lies. You didn't feel like they supported him through the trial? I don't. Do they think he was guilty? I don't know. You, you don't know where they did or not? Did they come to the trial? The second trial? No, I, I believe I was the only supporter. Um, I believe they, family members were there here and there. Um, and I get everyone has their life. I made it my life. Granted, I'm not asking everyone to do that, um, but I didn't feel the support and the love that he should have gotten, that he gave back. It's interesting to hear her take on his family. She said to me that she made it her life, meaning Aaron and Aaron's trial. But really, it was the Aaron show. He was the center of her world, and she orbited around him. I knew that something she really wanted to get across during our time speaking was that he had these positive qualities. She wanted to humanize him for America. She explained why she loved him, his humor, his charisma, and that he was such a good father to their little girl. Even so, the amount this woman had to contend with just is overwhelming. She never denied that he had an angry streak. She also conceded that he had been unfaithful. Yet despite extreme evidence to the contrary, she remained convinced of his innocence. She made no bones about it. Remember how so much was made during the trial about how she was the one who most likely got rid of the gun used to murder Odin? Well, I questioned her about this straight up, just like happened at the trial. She emphasized that she really didn't want to know about the darker side of Aaron. Could that murder weapon have been in that box? Could have. I will never know. Do you wish you'd look, or are you glad you didn't? Glad I didn't. Why? I don't want to know anything that um, can haunt me in a sense. I, I, I'd rather be in the dark with a situation like that. You'd rather not know? Correct. Mm -hmm. I know that so many of you are thinking, you would have looked, you would have asked, but you have to appreciate the dynamic between these two. He was a dominant force, and she was very subservient. Even though on her own, she is a woman to be reckoned with, in that relationship where they had been together for so long, there was a definite pecking order, and he was the alpha. I think back to some of my life laws, and there are two that seem to fit here. First, 
people do what works. For these two, as the defense said, Shayana was on a need-to-know basis, and this worked for them. He needed someone who was going to celebrate his strengths and understand and not challenge his significant faults. It's hard to envision him with someone who would challenge him or have a strong personality because he just won't tolerate that. Somebody spilled a drink on him and he allegedly shot him and his friend to death for spilling a drink. That's irritable. The second life law you can't change what you don't acknowledge. That really rings true here. He clearly didn't acknowledge that he had deeply ingrained anger issues that were poisoning his life. He didn't acknowledge it. She did not acknowledge it. And she claimed she did not know he was headed down such a dangerous path. Now, he was going out at night. He was going with a rough crowd sometimes all night. Women, I ask you, would that be acceptable with your husband? I'm betting most of you are saying not just no, but hell no. Switching gears now, so much has been made in the press about Aaron's sexuality. And the reason we need to talk about it here was because it allegedly deeply impacted him. I brought this up to his fiancée as well. After his death, it was reported that he was gay. And you were his fiancée. Was he secretly gay? The Aaron that I know, no. I had no indication or any feeling that he was such. He was very much a man to me. I don't know where this came from. It's embarrassing in a sense. It's hurtful, regardless if it was true or not. It's just not something that I saw. It's, it's not something that I believe. Now, listen, this isn't about being judgmental. It doesn't matter what his sexuality was. That was his business and nobody else's. But by many accounts, Aaron was the one who felt deep shame about his attraction to men. And that shame shaped him. Growing up, it was known that his father put a major emphasis on acting like a, quote, man's man. There's a well-known story from Aaron's childhood that his father once went ballistic when Aaron expressed an interest in cheerleading and dance. That just did not fit his father's mold of a real man. And he had made that very clear to him. Football was what he chose to focus on instead. We now know of men Aaron was allegedly romantically involved with. One was with a young man named Dennis. These two were thick as thieves from childhood and into high school. Dennis was the team quarterback, while Aaron, as we know, was the tight end. And according to Dennis, the two had a great friendship as well as an on and off relationship from middle school on through their junior year of high school. They hid the true nature of their relationship with others because they were scared of what might happen, how their reputation might be impacted if the true nature of their relationship got out. 
Aaron's college girlfriend, Alyssa Anderson, thought he might be bisexual or gay because she caught him texting other men. Now, according to Aaron's brother, Jonathan, their father was straight-up homophobic and had an extremely negative response to any behavior that he deemed, quote, too feminine. He encouraged an anti-gay mentality and would use disparaging words and threats towards his son to prove his point. According to his high school friend-slash-boyfriend Dennis, they both had fears about getting caught and having their parents disown them. He also said that he wasn't his only male intimate relationship. Even after his conviction, there are recorded phone calls between Aaron and Shayana where he insulted inmates he insinuated were gay. It was his defense mechanism and a way to deflect his own insecurities. As is so often the case, to compensate for his true feelings, to compensate for his sexuality, to deflect and throw people off, he acted like a tough guy. He acted like his stereotypic definition of a, quote, man's man. He was covered in tattoos and had an intimidating stare. This fear of being gay may very well have contributed to his need to fight people, to conquer the football field, to be with a woman. He was trying to fit in the box that he thought would please society and, more importantly, please his father. You can't help but sympathize with him in this instance because he was very likely dealing with self-hatred. And self-hatred can often lead to self-sabotage. And if you don't think that you're worth it, well, you're just likely to bring yourself down. And when you feel that frustration, you're likely to vent it on whoever happens to be in the line of fire, whoever happens to be a handy target. I can imagine the frustration he must have felt, the inability to be who he really was, and all that frustration building up in him and his ability to vent that would give him some relief. Another connective theme you see with Aaron is this idea of shame. And the reason those close to him say he felt this way was because of abuse he endured as a child. While his brother has never revealed who allegedly harmed Aaron, he says that his brother did confide in him that he was molested. He claimed it was an older person in the neighborhood and that it happened during hide-and-seek. His brother believes that the physical abuse Aaron endured from his father and the sexual abuse he went through at the hands of his neighbor caused him to feel real shame and that he connected his molestation to his attraction to men. Oftentimes, there's no one who knows you better than a sibling. For Aaron's brother, they shared the pain of their father's beatings, which stung as badly as his harsh words. His brother also said he couldn't even imagine having a conversation about bisexuality or homosexuality with his father, that his father would have just gone ballistic. This all shaped Aaron and solidified his fear of being other. In our next and final episode on this case, we'll discuss this story's tragic end. 
Was everything truly as it seemed, or was Aaron hiding even more secrets, even from beyond the grave? And I know we have been wondering, what was going on in Aaron's mind? Well, we're going to actually talk about just that, literally what was going on in his troubled brain. I predict that what you hear will shock you. That's what's next on The Fall of a Hero. From Football to Murder. Mystery and Murder Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil.